Who is Jesus? It's perhaps the most important question you could ever ask, while simultaneously also being a difficult question to answer. Even in Jesus' day, people who interacted with him had a hard time, hard time understanding who Jesus was. Earlier, Paula read that, Paula read that account in um, Mark 4, where the disciples were in a boat, and, and such a violent storm hit them that they, that they feared for their lives. They woke a man who then calmly quieted the storm with just his voice. He reduced the fury of the storm to a peaceful hush. And then, awestruck, these disciples murmured among themselves, asking, who then is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? Then the same man proceeded to, to heal a paralyzed man and forgive him of his sins, and the, which the religious leaders, they boiled with anger, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then reports about him spread throughout the region, and news of him reached the palace of King Herod, and puzzled, he said, John the Baptist, I have beheaded, but who is this man of whom I hear such things? Who is this man? To the question, who is this man, Paul answers in our text with four profound statements. Each one begins with the words, he is. And so as I read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, I invite you to circle in the bulletin, not your Bibles, um, the four he is statements that you see there. And know this, it matters not if you've been a Christian for decades or if you're not yet a follower of Christ. These he is statements should cause you to marvel at who Jesus is. You ready? Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that in Christ Jesus, all of our questions are answered, all of our needs are satisfied, all of our longings that are holy and good come true. We thank you for this word to us. Help us to grow in a knowledge of who Jesus is. May his supremacy over all things be that which delights us this morning, we pray. Amen. I have never been in an earthquake, have you? 
I always had this sense that if there was a massive earthquake, I would rise to my feet and I would sprint out of the building to safety. And then I would go back in and, and rescue helpless men, women, and children and their beautiful pets. And then I get my picture in the paper. I don't think that way anymore. I recently read an account that makes me doubt my abilities to be heroic. Now I'm not so sure that I could even get off the ground, let alone run to safety and help others. So I read an account recently of someone who endured the massive earthquakes in Puerto Rico, and he describes the moment that the ground shook, and it shook so violently that he was completely unable to even stand, let alone walk to safety. His testimony helped me to realize something, that, that a massive earthquake causes the ground beneath you to move so violently and so randomly that, that it's like trying to stand up on one of those mechanical bulls, you know, and to ride it. You just cannot do it. Though your mind says rise and move, you cannot. And then in the moment in which the quake has ceased, you come to this humbling conclusion that you lack within you the self-sufficiency that can make you rise and run to safety. You know, most of us here uh, will never endure an earthquake, but all of us will come to endure a different kind of quake, perhaps what you could call a life quake, some event in your life that shakes you to the point that you realize that our self-sufficiency isn't sufficient for the task. It could be the betrayal of a spouse, the diagnosis of diabetes, MS, or cancer. Or it could be the life quake of financial ruin or bitterness in the household or career failure. It's true, life can deliver us earth-shaking moments which knock us to our knees, leave us paralyzed, vulnerable, and scared. Life is full of earth-shaking moments. And so we're prone to panic not towards peace and rest. Did you know that shortly after Paul wrote this letter and sent it to Colossae, um, the city endured a massive, massive earthquake? It's true that Paul wrote this letter around 60 AD, and depending upon the historian, Tacitus or Eusebius, um, there was an earthquake in either 61 AD or 64 AD, and it leveled the city in the surrounding region. My friends, certainly the Colossians held on to this letter in more ways than one. And even more so, they held on to Christ, who is the focus of Paul's letter and our text. In this passage we, that we have just read, it addresses what God has done for us. In all of life, but especially when life quakes, he lifts us and he holds all things together. And so he's able to, to put our shaken lives at rest. And how is this possible? Because of the supremacy of Christ. Paul speaks of it in verse 18, although he uses a different word that could be translated that way. Paul writes, it is that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent could easily be translated and often is with supremacy. My friends, these he is statements that we've read, they magnify the supremacy of Christ, that he is preeminent over all things. And so the point that Paul wants us to understand this morning is this. Because of the supremacy of Christ, we can rest in the sufficiency of Christ. We will see that as we look at the 
four he is statements. The first he is statement is right at the beginning of verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. When I was in junior high school, I used to go um, nearby to this creek, this creek nearby the house, and I would, I would just sit there and daydream and think. And I remember a time, one day specifically, when I was thinking about Jesus. Now, know this. Um, my mother um, is a Christian scientist, which is a religion that is neither Christian nor scientific. But when I was young, she would drag my brother and I to Sunday school when I was a little kid. Christian science Sunday school, Right. Not, not a church like Grace Church. So I heard stories about Jesus, but the Christian scientists teach that Jesus is just a man. That's it. And so on that day, as I was reflecting about Jesus, um, I had a sentimental view of him as being being wise and kind man that everybody liked. And, and I remember thinking that I wanted to be like Jesus the man. If only I'd had somebody who knew this passage, who could come to me and point to me something far more grander than my understanding of Jesus. Yes, Jesus is fully man, but he's also fully divine. That's what Paul means when he writes, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, perhaps you're thinking, how can something that's visible, invisible rather, have an image? Seems strange, right? But Paul is writing in Greek, the Greek language. In an ancient Greek Greek thought, the, the image hack actually, it was believed to have a share of the reality that it reveals, so, so that in some way it really can be the reality. Paul is saying that when you look at Jesus, you see the image of God in human flesh. Do you, do you remember in John's Gospel when Philip said, Jesus, just, just show, show us the, the Father and we'll be happy? Remember Jesus' reply? Have I been with you so long, oh, the patience of Jesus, that you still do not know me, Philip? Then he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. My friends, that's essentially what Paul is saying. He's saying what Jesus said. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. My friends, in Christ, we see who God is, what God is like, and what God does. We see that God is our our creator and and our redeemer. He's the God, the holy God who lavishes mercy and grace and love into this world. He's the one who comes down to us to, to rescue and reconcile and restore us. Paul elaborates upon his statement that Jesus is the image of the invisible God by adding the firstborn of all creation. Now, what does that mean? You know, Jehovah Witnesses will point to Paul's words here, and they'll say, see, Jesus is just a created being. He's a creature created by God. Therefore, therefore, he isn't God. But my friends, this is where good scholarship will actually prevent you from believing heresy. In the ancient world, the firstborn son who was the one who inherited the entire estate. If you were not born the firstborn son, you did not have status as firstborn over all inheritance. This is how Paul is using the phrase firstborn when speaking of Jesus. See, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Why? Because through him he created all things. He owns it. It's his. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Before we look at this much further, take a second to circle those three very important prepositions for 
by him, verse 16, and then towards the end of it, all things were created through him, circle the through him, and then for him. Jesus is the rightful sovereign over all creation because he created all things. Paul leaves nothing to chance. He says all things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, and even any sort of power or dominion or anything is created uh, by Christ. Think about it. This ever-expanding universe with its trillions of stars and billions of galaxies and all the invisible laws that hold all things together in perfect unity, God wants us to, to recognize and marvel that Jesus of Nazareth is, divine, is the divine creator of all these things. He's created it all. Paul is making sure we what? That we see the supremacy of Christ. That nothing exists in the universe that he isn't sovereign over. He is preeminent over all things. Look again at those prepositions. Paul begins by saying, by him all things were created. And then he says, all things were created through him and for him. By him, through him, for him. This is where the preeminence of Christ tends to rub against us. Most people are okay with the by him and the through him. It's the for him that our hearts are tempted to reject. See, the fact that all of creation, all of it was created for him, means that if we're to align our lives rightly and to live, to, to live rightly in light of this truth, then, then every second of every day is to be lived with the upward knowledge that he is supreme of all, that his glory is for why I live my life. Every moment of every second of every day is for him. And not begrudgingly, but with adoration and delight and joy. Please let this reality of the gospel sink in this morning. See, until the gospel comes alive in you, you will live all of the days of your short life under the false assumption that life is all about you. And so your perspective will be that creation exists for your enjoyment, your, your, your hopes, your dreams, your desires, your career, your marriage, your kids, possessions, vacations. It's, it's all for you and for your consumption and for your enjoyment. And so sin is ultimately about supremacy. Remember, sin isn't all the little naughty things that you do wrong. Sin is to live in the glorious world that God created for one's own glory as if the creator doesn't exist. That is, that God isn't supreme or preeminent in your life. And so Paul wants this church in Colossae to, to gain a true and lofty perspective that all of creation, therefore all of life, is about God's glory. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. Sam Storms writes, Whatever exists exists that Jesus might be glorified, praised, and enjoyed forever. He is the reason, the goal, the aim, the intent, the point, the purpose, the end, the terminus, the consummation, the culmination of every molecule that moves. And then he asks, does that please you? Do you find unparalleled joy in knowing that it's about him and not you? 
And then he says, do you find delight in knowing that God didn't create the world so he could have you, but so that you could have him? So to the question, who is he? Paul first says he is God in the flesh who owns all things. He created all things and did all this for himself because he delights in creation and the glory that it displays. It leads to the second he is statement. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now, once again, we hear this before all things. And, and we, this is not saying that Jesus was created first and, and then the rest of the creation came. No, it means that Jesus is actually before space and time. How can that be? Because Jesus, the Son, and God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, they've always existed outside of time and space. And so when Jesus created creation, he created time. He existed before everything came into existence. It's hard to fathom. But does that make sense? Jesus is before all things, and then we read, and he holds all things together. Now, this is where the supremacy of Christ begins to put us at rest. He says, in, all thing, in, in him, all things hold together. H.C.G. Moore put it this way. He says, he keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. Another commentator writes, the point is, whatever coherence or unity the universe displays, it is due to the continual exertion of divine power from the Son of God. The risen Christ sustains and upholds all things. Jesus is the cohesive power that keeps all things intact. If at any moment, for any reason, he should loosen his providential and preserving grip on anything, it would disintegrate. It would vaporize and vanish into the vacuum of nothingness. Every heartbeat, every flutter of an eyelid, every rustle of every blade of grass, every breath you breathe is sustained by the Son of God. Truly did Paul say in Acts 17, 28, and in him we move and live and have our being. And so when that earthquake hit Colossae, a short time after receiving Paul's letter, I imagine they would have been encouraged and sustained by this word, right? They would be reminded that in Jesus, their Lord and Savior, all things cohere. Everything holds together. And so no matter the quakes in your life, no matter how widespread the destruction and sorrow, Jesus has not lost grip of this world nor of your life. And so if there is a shaking, it's because the Lord has willed it. You know, I think sometimes, I know sometimes, that the Lord puts life quakes into our life to humble us so that we would finally come to our senses and see that Jesus is what we need and ultimately he is all we need. He can sustain us. See, perceiving Christ this way changes how you live on this earth. It allows you to walk in faithfulness, in a manner worthy, a manner pleasing of the Lord. You know, far too many Christians live as functional atheists. Hardships come and they think, well, God must be off his throne today. Because if he was on his throne, then I wouldn't have been injured, lost my job, broke up with that girl, had my flight canceled, lost half my retirement savings. You get the point, right? 
because of the supremacy of Christ, because in him all things hold together, we may rest in the sufficiency of Christ. Now for the third he is statement. Look at the beginning of verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Wait a minute, that seems like quite the non sequitur. How do we get from, from Paul saying that Jesus is supreme over all creation and things invisible and invisible, all things hold together in him, and then he says he is the head of the body, the church. Paul wants us to see that just as, as Jesus has supremacy over creation, he also has supremacy over his new creation, his people. <clears throat> This is where many Christians in America need challenging. Far too many lack understanding regarding Christ and his church. They say, I belong to Christ, just not his church. Or they say, I love Jesus, it's that church I just don't like. Well, that's not how Christ sees things. My friends, Jesus loves the church. Yes, the church is flawed, he knows that, but he gave his body for the church He gave his life for the body, the church. He's the head of the church, and we are his body. When Christ saves you, he saves you to him, yes, but to his body here on earth, the church. If you've experienced salvation in Christ, then you've been made a member of his body. And Jesus calls his body the church. Remember what he said to Peter? And I tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How is it that the gates of hell shall not prevail against us? Because our Savior holds all things together. And he is on a mission, and we're invited into it. We're members of his body that he dearly loves. Now I get it. Some people have had horrible experiences in in church, perhaps at the hand of a mean Sunday school teacher or a power-hungry elder or a group of legalistic, gossipy hypocrites. I get it. But the fact that the church isn't who we should be does not minimize the truth that that the church is the body of Christ. You might roll your eyes at the church, but Jesus never will. He gave his life for the church. Jesus loves the church. Does he know that the church is flawed and weak and needy? Yes. Just as he he knows that you are flawed and weak and needy, and he loves you and lives for you just the same, so too he loves the church, and he lives for the church. He is its head, and we are his body. Now, When Paul says that Jesus is the head of the body, he doesn't mean like in name only, like in title only, like the way that Elizabeth has the title of Queen of England. Boy, she's got a lot to deal with lately, hasn't she? But when it comes to the daily operations and the administration of her country, she has very little, if any, role. Not so with Christ. He exerts functional authority over his body. And know this, the relationship between Christ the head and, and the church, the body, it's organic. It's, it's living. It's vital. He is our living head, and we are his alive body. He lovingly and sovereignly exercises control over us. 
And we joyfully and faithfully depend on his abiding influence in our lives, do we not? So we looked at the first three he is statements. Jesus is the image of the invisible God who created all things. He is before all things and holds all things together. And he is the head of the body. Lastly, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Once again, Paul's words seem a bit cryptic. He is the beginning. What is, what is that? What's he saying? He is saying that Jesus, who created all things in the universe, came into this messed up, rebellious world to create a new beginning for humanity. The phrase, the firstborn from the dead, gives us an important clue. Do you notice, not only does Jesus have this status of firstborn over all creation, he also has the status of firstborn over new creation. God has not abandoned his creation. Though mankind, made in his image, has rebelled and turned from God, God comes down anyway. Why? To make peace. To reconcile us back to himself. That's what verse 19 and 20 tell us. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was, look at that, pleased to dwell. It wasn't reluctance that Christ came down. He was pleased to take on our brokenness, our sin-stained world, to walk among people who would never understand him and want to kill him. He came into this and it pleased him. And that through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You will not be able to answer the who is Jesus question, and you will never get Jesus right until you see what he has done for you personally. Jesus' work on the cross is personal. Listen, he lived the perfect supremacy of God throughout his whole life, life for you. And he took upon him the death that you and I deserve. And he rose from the dead. That's why he's the firstborn from the dead. So that we, you, can be reconciled to God for, and enjoy him forever and ever. Understand this. The word reconciliation is far more profound than forgiveness. Forgiveness says you're free to go. Reconciliation says you're free to come because things have been restored. The relationship has been made right. Everything's been put in proper order. God up top, you down here. God has made this all possible. Christ has reconciled it. He's made it so you and I can actually be restored to how we're meant to live our lives, how God made mankind in the garden, to walk with him, to take delight in him, to have joy in him. And understand this, until God gives you that new life in Christ, your heart won't even want that. Your life won't be for him, it'll be for you. And you won't understand why everybody in in this church gets so excited about living for him. Your life needs to be put back into proper order. Jesus came to reconcile, to restore a people back to God and give them a new heart. Once again, God didn't send his son to earth so that he could get you. He sent his son so that you can get him. That's what reconciliation is all about. 
It's about you finally being able to live with this, the order of the universe, which is Christ preeminent. If you're here today and, and, you're, and you think this is kind of crazy, whacked out stuff, that Jesus is the Son of God who came to reconcile you, know this, that he is who he is whether you believe it or not. <laughs> you know, this is who he is, and, and you can have him as your own. All you need to do is turn to him. Confess, my life's been out of order. <laughs> it's all been about for me, for my family, for all this. Thank you that in love you've come down. You've made it right. If that becomes your prayer, you become a child of God. That's what a Christian is. Don't let the magnitude of what Jesus has done for you escape your mind. Jesus is risen from the dead. He's returned to heaven. And from there, he holds all things together, including the day when he does return to bring about the final installment of his kingdom. One day, listen, all that is wrong with this world will be rolled up and destroyed. And out of the ashes will be recreated, a new heavens and a new earth. And everything in that new creation will be properly aligned. He will reconcile all things to him finally and fully in that age to come. Consider this. Of all the lifequake moments, the one that we all must face is also the one we work so hard to ignore. It's our death. We bury our heads in the sand and busy ourselves with all sorts of really important activities so that we do not address the 800-pound gorilla in the room, which is our own mortality. Jesus' brother James describes the human life this way. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. It's true, right? Then he says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I think the older you get, the more that reality sinks in. When you're young, it's like, heck no, man. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills it. See, that's the preeminence of Christ. It's him on his throne. If the Lord wills it, we will live and do this or do that. The life quick reality is that all of us, before all of us, is that, we, is that we spend this mist of our lives, those 70, 80 years that our Creator has given us, living as if the Creator doesn't exist and that we never will die. We chase after power and profit and pleasure as if we are preeminent. It's as if the world exists for us, for our glory, for our petty wishes. Thankfully, Christ has come to make that all different, Right? Before he went to his death, Jesus declared to his disciples these words, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. He is going to the cross, and he is going to rise and return to his throne in heaven in a physical body. Jesus has a physical body at this very moment. He says, Because I live, you also will live. His resurrection to new life from the dead is not a one-off event. His new life from the dead was the first of many millions to come. And here's one of the amazing truths of the gospel. Just as Jesus rose from the dead to newness of life, so too all who turn and trust in Christ in this lifetime will rise from death in the age to come. My friends, God has remedied the greatest life quake you will ever have, your sin and your death. 
Some of you haven't given your life to Christ. You can do so today. He will reconcile with you. Just admit your need for reconciliation. For the rest of us here who have trusted in Christ, let us grow in our comprehension of who he is. May these four he is statements redirect our hearts and minds. Jesus has reconciled you back to God. He's placed everything back into its proper order for you. So that, what? Christ will be preeminent in all things in our lives. So we're closing. Let me just ask some revealing questions for us to think about. And this is for me as well. I don't stand up here as your pastor or someone who's got this all right. Every second of every day, boy, oh boy, at Mark Middlecoff, he's like focused, right? He, he never drops the ball. Now, this is for me as well. Let me ask, to what extent does your life reflect the preeminence of Christ? Are the affairs of your daily existence so ordered that Jesus is seen to be preeminent? Is there any doubt in the way you use your time, your money, your talents, that Jesus is the source and center of it all for you? Is he your treasure? Does does he govern your life in such a way that all around you know that he is your Lord? How visible is the supremacy of Christ in the way you walk? And like talk to other people. Are you always angry? Are you that Christian who just like looks gossips or looks down on others? Everything's a problem. Do you lack joy? Maybe desire to live every moment or every day with the joyful knowledge that Jesus is supreme. And when we feel restless, anxious due to the quakes of life, may the supremacy of Christ cause us to rest in the sufficiency of Christ. Let's pray. On paper, it it all looks so right. It looks so good and so easy. Jesus, you are supreme above all things, and we're not, and we belong to you, and our lives are lived for your glory. It seems so easy. And truthfully, we want that. But we know that, that we can't even get up with the ground, get off the ground and, and pursue this without you in our lives. The power, the grace, the mercy, the encouragement to walk in faithfulness, pleasing to you. So we ask, Father, to send more of your spirit so that. Jesus, your son, would be magnified in our lives, that we would not be anxious in anything, that we would trust in the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ over us and through us and in us, we pray. Amen.